0: Well, church, we're continuing on in our series this morning, How To. And uh, today we're going to be diving into a portion of scripture that's really going to hopefully challenge us to think differently about the topic of love. About the topic of love. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Probably one of the most familiar portions of John's Gospel, the one in which Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Now, uh, for those of you who are Gold Star students, and I hope that's every one of you in here, I need you to also please flip over and hold your place in the book of 1 John. 1 John, because we're going to be in two places today. Two places today. Um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully I'll be able to bring this home for us. Now, we live in a society and a culture that is very confused about the topic of love. In fact, there are more books, more songs... More more poems and more literature written about the topic of love more than any other subject that we know in a history of book writing in some form. And yet there is really only one book and one author that we as Christians need to be concerned with and consumed with. Most of you in here know who the author is, and we have a copy of that book not just in our hands, but also written upon our hearts. For those of you who are note takers, I want you to write down everything that we need to know about love is found right in the pages of God's love letter to man. It's found right in the pages of God's love letter to man. You know, the world today is looking for love, and the reality is is there is a place that God told them to look, and that was the church. You know, Francis Schaeffer, who was a theologian and and pastor and author, said in his book, The Church Before the Watching World, he said, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son. We cannot expect that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of oneness amongst Christians. He, in essence, gave the world clear instructions to check the church out and see if you find love in the church. Jesus has given that right to the world to look into the life of the church and to judge whether or not someone is actually a Christian based upon whether or not the people in the body are loving and caring for one another. Now, the church... The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. Amen? Amen. In the midst of our present and dying culture, Jesus gave a right to the world upon his authority to look inside the church and judge whether or not we are born again Christians on the basis of observable love. And in my eyes, that's really frightening. It's extremely frightening Because perhaps the greatest failure in the church is for believers to not display love towards one another. The greatest failure. Nothing is more important to the health of a church internally and externally than the love that we show towards one another. There was a man by the name of Patrick Morley that said the height of our love for God will never exceed our depth for our love for one another. In fact, Thomas Carlyle, who was a friend of Patrick Morley, said that 10 men banded together in love and unity can do what 10,000 separately would fail to do. Church, I, I want us this morning to look at what Jesus told the disciples in the upper room just before his death and right after washing their feet. I'm not going to read through the foot-washing scene for us, but I want us to pick up in verse number 31 here in John chapter 13, and I want us to see what Jesus said. He says that when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now this is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I am also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I want you to note in verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus made five different references to glory in the space of just two verses in verse 31 and 32 and with good reason. The world looked at the cross and could only see humiliation and disgrace and curse. Jesus looked at the cross and knew what he was going to accomplish and all he could say was glorified. Was glorified. That's how he responded to the act in which he was about to walk through. The cross made perfectly known the heart of Jesus. And for Jesus to be known was to be glorified. God was glorified through Jesus. And Jesus was glorifying God. And now the time was coming that the disciples would need to also glorify God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. But how? How do we glorify God? Jesus told us right here in the portion of Scripture... He said, by displaying the love of the Father that's within us externally to the people around us. In other words, church, what's on the inside of you should be displayed on the outside. Christian, I want you to look up here real quick. Is what's inside of you real? Is the claim that you make to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is it real? Do the ingredients of your life match the taste and the experience that people have around them? True, genuine, real, biblical love is what Christ displayed. So how we act as Christians and how we interact with people is the hallmark of God's children, meaning that love should be the logo of our life as Christians. Man, I thought about playing a little game this morning and putting a bunch of different logos onto the screen to see how many of you recognize the logos. And as I was going through this, I was like, no, this is really silly. This is really silly to put a bunch of logos, right? We we all know the apple symbol. Unfortunately, it's the logo that has a, a chunk bitten out of it, which was initially the sign of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. Sad? Yes. We all know the symbol for Walmart or Meyer or McDonald's. It's all things that we know and we see on a regular basis. Logos are everywhere, church, and they're unmistakable in many cases. And so we as God's children, his disciples, are to be God's logo to the world And so the first thing I want us to see this morning in this portion of Scripture is that we are commanded to love one another. We're commanded to love one another. I was messing around with the prayer team earlier, and I said, unfortunately. We are commanded to love one another, unfortunately. And I was just messing around uh, so we could have a little bit of a laugh uh, this morning. But in all seriousness, church, Jesus is not suggesting that we love one another. In fact, Jesus is not telling us of the possibility of loving one another. He's not telling us of an opportunity to love one another. He's not even telling us uh, uh, to encourage us to love one another. He commanded us to love one another. He commanded it. And so we are commanded under orders, under authority by Jesus Christ himself to love people here in the body. But then the question must be posed. The question, what is love? What is love? There was a running joke in my small group when I was a leader years ago. And I won't mention to you uh, names for uh, no importance at all. Uh, But the question was often posed, what is love? To which at that time, a bunch of teenage boys would typically respond with really silly answers. But one of them always stuck out. It was a social construct. That's what love is, a social construct. And, and today, I, I wanted to break us down for us so that you know that love is not something that was created by the world. Love was not created by, by some uh, secular psychologist or, or some author of some book, but, but how we define love as a Christian is extremely important. Why? Because if we define love in the wrong way, then either everybody passes or nobody passes the love test in our eyes. And so to understand the biblical idea of love, we have to begin by understanding the vocabulary of love. We have to understand the ancient Greeks who gave us the original language of the New Testament. And so today I want to break down the four words that the Greeks used for love. And each one of them means something different and hopes to point out to you what Jesus was referring to here. And so the first, the first word for love that the Greeks, word, the, the Greeks used was the word eros, E-R-O-S, eros. And it is described, as we might guess from the word itself, erotic love, erotic love. It refers to the sexual love that was meant for a man and a woman in, the, in their marriage bed, eros. The second word is storge, storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, storge. And this was their second word for, for love, and it referred to a family love. Family love. The, the kind of love between a parent and a child, or, or between family members in general. Storge, storge. The third one is one more recognizable, and it's philea, philea. This is the third word that the Greeks used for love, and it is spoken of brotherly love or affection. Brotherly love or affection, meaning the love of a deep friendship. The love of a deep friendship. Philea love might be described as the highest love that one is capable of without God's help. Without God's help. And then the last one, and probably the most prominent love that's spoken about in the church, is agape. Agape love. And it is described as a love that loves without changing. It is a self-giving love that gives without demands or expectations. It is a love so great that can even be given to the unlovable and the unappealing, agape love. It is a love that loves even when it is rejected. You know, agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It gives essentially because it loves And it does not love in order to receive from other people. You know, I I found stained throughout Scripture that biblical love is not merely felt as an outward feeling, it is shown by demonstration. It is the ultimate demonstration that we saw upon the cross of Christ and church. I think the thing that makes so many of us upset is we confuse the words like and love oftentimes in our lives. Like is how I feel. Love is a command regardless of that emotion. I'm going to say it again. Like is how I feel. Love is a command regardless of my emotion. It is a command regardless of my emotion. And that's why we have to love people even when we don't like them. You know, I don't know about you, but I've come to realize that being a believer is not easy. Amen, church? Right, try loving people that you don't really like. Try loving people that you don't really like. You know, I've found throughout Scripture and even in my own personal life that God brings those people our way to teach us to love what we don't like and to help us understand in some way what God did with each and every one of us. Every, every single one of us. You know, uh, God did not send his son and, and, and tell Jesus to wait to love us until we were lovely. Jesus did not wait. God was setting his love uh, upon us and he was loving us even while we were his enemies. That's why Paul said in Romans 5 that, that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there's a, there's a real sense in which we would not know what love was all about if not if not for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross uh, we I was telling the the prayer team earlier, and really, in my prayers all week we as as people as sinners, have an innate ability to pervert the true meaning of love. in fact, we pursue all kinds of things under the guise of looking for love in fact, nature can teach us many things about God. It can show us his wisdom. It can show us God's intelligence. It can show us his mighty power. But nature in and of itself cannot teach us that God is a God of love. It can't. We needed the death of Jesus Christ to ultimately demonstrate that love to us. And since we are sent as believers with the exact same mandate that Jesus was sent with, we must demonstrate that love by laying down our lives for our brothers and our sisters in Christ. The entire concept here in these four verses, really the entire concept spoken relationally in the Bible is that carried of a family. It's a family connection. How do we love our family? The very manner in which we treat people is to be a sign and a symptom that we have the love of the Father that's within us. Church, we're commanded to love one another. The second thing I want us to see, though, is that Jesus is the pattern that we chase with obedience. Jesus is the pattern that we chase with obedience. I want you to look back with me to verse number 34, John 13:34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I want you just to stop right there. This, this phrase caught me off guard as I was studying out this portion of scripture. A new commandment that I give to you? Wait, you were not supposed to love people before that? You're not supposed to love God before that? What, what is this new commandment? Well, I want you to know that the specific language in the specific Greek word here that Jesus used was the Greek word kainos, meaning new, kainos, and it implies freshness or the opposite of outworn rather than recent or different. Now, we might have thought this new commandment was for us to love Jesus in some new, outstanding way. In fact, that might be the first thought, but Jesus directed the disciples, he's now directing us to love one another, emphasize to us church that there should be a special presence of god and his love amongst followers of jesus christ right here in the body of church the command to love was not new but the extent of love that was just displayed by jesus and washing of the disciples feet that was new that was new and so would the display of the cross. It would be a new picture and demonstration, an action of love to the people. Love was newly defined by Jesus' example here and now. And the reason, church, that some of us are not experiencing this new application is because we don't love God or we don't love the people that God tells us to love. That's why we don't experience it. And we love ourselves more than we love other people. I want you to imagine with me this morning, how many of you have ever had people come over to your house for dinner? Or you've ever been to somebody's house, right? Every every hand has been raised. Imagine with me for a moment that you invited a family over to your house for fellowship and, and dinner, and you were in the process of fixing, and your guests came, and within a few moments of walking in the door, they're like, where's the food? When are we going to sit down and eat? With an attitude, the moment they came through that door. Imagine that you rush to serve that meal and to get it done, and you sit down, and there's little to no conversation over that meal. Maybe an occasional like, hmm, as you're eating. And 20 minutes into them being in your home, they've already asked questions. You've already been frustrated. You rush to get that meal done. You sat down. You ate it. They get up. They tell you thank you for the meal, and they walk out of your house after 20 minutes. Imagine that very thing, that the food was served, no conversation, nothing deep happened at all. Sadly, church, today the church tends to be filled with people who only want the food and have no desire for fellowship. None whatsoever And if you feel today that you are regularly distant from God and that you're disconnected from Him, it is probably due to the fact that you're not spending enough time with your spiritual family. It's probably due to that fact. Listen, I I want you to know that when we became Christians, when we became followers of Jesus Christ, this was not an only child family, all right? It was not, this is not my daddy who is in heaven, it is our Father who's in heaven. And as a church, I've come to realize that God does not have time for spoiled brats in the kingdom of heaven. God does not have time for a bunch of, of, of spoiled brats who refuse to get along with one another. God does not have time uh, for people who refuse to serve and to love and to give to one another. He doesn't have time for people like that. Why? Because that's the very antithesis of what he came to do. The people in, in the quote-unquote church who label themselves Christians and then don't love and serve and give and work as a church body, you're doing the very work of Satan. The very work of Satan is, is what you display with your life, and God is saying that if you want me, you get my family as well, even when you don't like them. You can't get me and exclude them. So church, I, I want you to now jump with me to 1 John, and I want to show you something. I want to show you something from the same, the same writer here in, in John's gospel, same guy who wrote First, Second, and Third John. I want you to look at chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, and yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The focus of John here is on loving Christians, loving Christians. Uh, Of course, church, I want to address something real quick with us. We are called to love our enemies, and we are called to love those who hate and persecute us. But John is calling the Christian to a more basic test. He's saying that if we can't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, then what kind of Christian are we? What kind of Christian? Love is the demonstration, and it often involves sacrifice, meaning that I have laid down my life for another church, Christian, friend in this room. Wishing to be more loving won't do. Wishing will not make it happen because it won't sacrifice where it's necessary. And if we take the analogy uh, of Jesus' love for us, sometimes the cost of love will make us feel like we're dying. But that's what it meant by laying down your life for your brother. Love means saying no to my own life so that another life can live. But the sad reality is that oftentimes we consider ourselves ready to lay down our life in one great, dramatic, heroic gesture. But for most of us, God's just calling us to lay down our lives piece by piece, little by little, but in every important way every day. I think that's what Paul meant when he said in Ephesians 5, it's going to hit the screens for you. He said, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. You know, Paul used the term beloved children because God's kids are to be imitators. It doesn't matter what, what age you are, you are one of God's children and you are to be imitators. You know, if I were to go downstairs, right now or if I were to call my wife and have her bring up our children's ministry going on downstairs right now and I were to call those kids up here onto the platform and I would ask them for their involvement in some way I guarantee those children would be excited uh, to to be a part many of times they just want to be up here on the stage but those kids would be so excited to be involved ask an adult it's a completely different story it's a completely different story why because the older that we get in our faith, we somehow think we don't need to keep imitating Jesus. We we just get to stop. And I I heard this story several years ago of a husband and a wife, and they were fighting over who was going to eat the last piece of cheesecake. And it was an argument that went on for, for several minutes before the wife said, well, Jesus says to share. Jesus says to share. And so the husband replied back, okay, well then you be Jesus and I'll eat the cheesecake. (laughs) And that's the mentality that we take. We have to remember Jesus commanded us to love one another just moments after he was down on his hands and knees scrubbing the dirty feet of the disciples. He was down on his hands and knees washing the feet of Judas, the one who after this dinner would get up and go and betray him. And yet he got down and washed their feet. And in fact, church, I prayed and I sought the Lord and asked him, God, can we do a foot washing service right here in this church so that we would understand what it means to get down and dirty with our brothers and sisters here in this body? We we personally have to get involved in the lives of the people that we minister to. We have to we have to we have to see the way that Christ sees the people and guess what? It starts right here in the church. It starts right here with loving sometimes the unlovable people right here in our church. You know, John, the one who wrote this, was perhaps one of the closest people to Jesus. And he takes us on this deeper and more profound look at love that he personally experienced. And he's urging the Christian to know that love and to share that love. That's why God wants you to be a part of a church. That's why God wants you to be a part That's why you should join the church and and commercial break for just a moment. If you're sitting in this room and you have not ever, ever given thought to or you've had an opportunity to join this church and become a member here at the well, you'll have an opportunity in one month. We're doing a brand new new members dinner happening on November 11th, downstairs. There's going to be a sign up in the coming weeks. And I encourage you, why? Because right here we are told in scripture that we need to be a part of something that's greater than ourselves. There are some people that need to stop being regular attenders and start becoming faithful members here at the church. This is why church involvement and participation is so important. Why? Because to remain disconnected from the church is to distance yourself from the very thing that christ commanded you be involved in it's to distance yourself and so the third thing i need us to see and probably one of the most important things is that the training ground to love people is in the church the training ground to love people is in the church you know there's a distinction in the bible about who we love and how we love And I want us to stay on track here as much as we can, and I'm not going to delve too much into the other side of this, but yes, we are called and commanded in Scripture to love our neighbor. We know this, and we know that our context today is specifically talking about Christians loving other Christians. And so there is a vast difference here that I need us to, to see. Our neighbor can be our brother, but in most cases our neighbor is someone who's not in the family, meaning someone who's not a believer, We are to love them for sure, and we should show them the love of Christ. Now, here is where it's going to get a little complicated and tricky. If I love someone who is lost, a non believer, I tend to not expect anything back from them. If they blow me off, or if they're rude, or if they treat me poorly, it doesn't really matter. They're lost, they get a pass. They're not held to the same standard as the Christian. They're acting just like a lost person acts. And so I deal with it. And I pray for them. And I keep trying to win them to Christ. But the flip side of that, when when it comes to loving someone in the family, that's hard. That's hard, church. Would you agree with that? It's hard to love people in the family. Why? Because we know better. Because we know better. Because we all know how our dad wants us to treat each other and how he's placed his love inside of us. And so we can actually do this. And, and when we don't act like children of God, and when we don't live like children of God, we are in essence saying that something is wrong internally inside of us. Like I'm disconnected from the Father, or maybe I was never really connected to begin with. When we don't love our family and when we don't show the world a picture of God's love, something is desperately wrong in the life of a believer. And the reality is, church, is that we're not abiding in the Father. That's why we act that way. We're not abiding in the Father. If you are sitting in here today, or if you're online, or if you're in the balcony, and you find yourself fitting in with lost people more than Christians... If you find yourself getting along with lost people better and wanting to be with lost people more than with your Christian brother and sister, you have a real problem on your hand. I'm not saying to never be with them, but if you would rather spend more time or have more connectivity, there's a real problem on your hands, and there's a very good chance that you might not be a child of God. And I don't mean to stand here and um, hopefully not get you to doubt your salvation. In fact, we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I know we have a church full of hurt people. I know we have a church of people who have been offended and who have been hurt by other pastors and other church people, there are probably some in this room that have been hurt and offended by me right here as your pastor. And I want to say this to you, God's kids can be jerks sometimes. And I know sometimes that the church will fail you. And church people have serious issues at times. But I want us to hang on for just a moment. I want you to hold tight. I want you to flip over to chapter 4 here in 1 John. And I want to read to us a few verses to close this out. John goes on to say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have for him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Church, the the greatest evidence of God's presence and work among us as a body of believers is love. And since no one has seen God at any time, this provides evidence for the presence of God in our lives. You know, I've talked to people all throughout my years in ministry and I've heard some really weird, like off-the-wall crazy statements. I've heard people say that the greatest evidence of God's presence or work is power. I've heard people say that the greatest evidence of God's work is popularity. I've heard people say that the greatest evidence of God's presence and work is passionate feelings. But the greatest evidence of God's presence in work is His love. Where God is present and working, there will be love in those situations. You know, sometimes Jesus seemed weak and lacking in power, but he was always full of love. Sometimes Jesus was not popular at all, but he was always full of love. Sometimes Jesus didn't inspire passionate feelings in people's lives at all, but he was always, always full of love. Love was constant and consistent in Jesus' life, and it was the evidence and the presence of the work of God in and through him. God's family is not perfect. So what do we do? What do we do as believers? Well, John said that his his love will be perfected in us. It will be perfected in us. Meaning that his love will be perfected in us for glory and for the purpose of showing the world who, who, and what love looks like you know that word perfected uses the Greek word teleu which means not perfect but it means complete and mature. Something that is complete and mature. If we love one another then the love of God is mature and complete in us meaning that it is perfected. But John comes back yet again to a familiar idea. A familiar idea, if we really walk in God's love towards us, that it will be evident in the way that we love the people around us. The mature Christian will be marked by love. Will be marked by love. And the true measure of maturity is not the image of power. It's not the image of popularity. It's not the image of passionate feelings, but the abiding presence of God's love in our lives that's given out to other Christians. God placed each and every one of us in this family for such a time as this to show us how to love. We don't get to pick and choose who comes into our family we are we are commanded to obey and then watch what happens there's coming a day church when our lives will be reviewed by God John talked about it in verse number 17 He said the day of judgment, and he brought it up with intentionality. There's coming a day when we will be reviewed by God. Every single word that we have ever spoken has been recorded by God. Every single deed that we have done has been recorded by God. Every single action has been noted by God. Every attitude has been written down and every motive has been placed in a memo that is in God's keeping. God is going to go over our lives with us. But there is one thing, church, that I hope stands out amongst all of the other stuff that we have an answer for. That we have an answer for as a church And that one thing is that we should be confident in and have the ability to look at God and say, don't you see, Father, I loved my brothers and sisters in Christ. I loved them. There's one thing that we will have to give an account for in this life. And we need to have confidence and boldness to say, I know for a fact that I loved my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so church, I have a question for us as we begin to land this plane. Are, are you going to be confident on the day of judgment that you genuinely loved other Christians? Not just the ones that you picked and choose, but all Christians No matter matter where your differences lie, no matter what they look like, no matter if they're covered in tattoos from their head to their toe, or they have piercings, or whatever it is, because they listen to a different type of music than you, or because they do things differently in their home, are you going to be able to confidently stand before God and say, I genuinely loved other brothers and sisters in Christ? Did I genuinely love them? And if you're in here right now and you're hesitant to even answer that question, what do you think's going to happen when you stand before God? We must leave from here today and determine to extend love into the lives of the people around us. We must leave here today and, and beg of God to help us love diligently. We must leave here today asking God to help us love deeply the people who are here in this body. We should be praying, God, help me to be determined. Give me the strength to be determined by your command. Not by my feelings. To love people so that that love becomes a delight and not a duty. In fact, we we should be asking the Lord to lead us to those people who need love. And then ask God to use us as the source of love and encouragement in their lives. Well, pastor, that's easier said than done. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right that it is easier said than done. It's easier said to each other. It's easier prayed. There's a time in each one of our lives where the prayer happens, but then action has to follow, action proceeds after the prayer. I think back to James often in the the series that we went through just recently. To him who knows what is right and does not do it, to him it is sin. To him it is sin. We can't walk away from service today saying, I didn't know that I was supposed to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. But church, it, it starts in your personal relationship with the Lord. You'll never be able to love another individual, your spouse, your children, your coworkers. You'll never be able to love people here in this building unless you're abiding in Christ. That was Jesus' words. Those who abide in me, I abide in him. And that produces a love for one another. So church, are you confident? Are you confident today that when you stand before, before the Lord, you'll be able to say with boldness, I loved my brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and we thank you for this day that you have given to us. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together and and to not only worship and lift your name high, but God, be challenged uh, to be an example of the command in which you have given to us. And so, Lord, I'm asking of you right now, I'm asking of you to give us the strength, Lord, to obey your commands, even in the struggle with our own weakness and in the struggle of our flesh, God. I'm asking that you would use the Holy Spirit to continue to nudge us, to continue to push us in the direction uh, of of, of leaning into you and your truth. God, I, I ask that you would make our ways straight, that you would give us a clear mind, that we would not be double-minded, we wouldn't look to the left or to the right, but that we would look straight to you. God, give us divine encounters here in our church or with other brothers and sisters that give us the ability to, to develop and form relationships and friendships. And God, out of that, I would ask that you would give us opportunities as a church to display that love to the people around us who are not believers and that they would be drawn to your hope because they have seen love in and through us. And I just ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.